0: Well, we continue our series in Paul's letter to uh, the Church of Colossae, to the letters of the Colossians. Uh, if you remember, here's a church of, of new Christians, young Christians, some of whom are getting a taste for false teaching. Is Jesus enough? Do I need something more? And Paul's answer has been emphatic. All you need is Christ. How can a sinner find peace with God? How can the unclean be made holy? How can I enjoy that healing forgiveness? How can I be set free from Satan's power? How can I, who am dead in trespasses and sins, be made alive? How can I be delivered from the old world, the cursed world, the dying world, to belong to God's new world? How can I escape Adam's fallenness? How can I find the love and presence of the living God? There's only one answer the Lord Jesus Christ. So, says Paul, don't get sucked into this false teaching. And do you remember what we said about this teaching? Colossi is, is strongly Greek, but it's got a large Jewish presence. So, pagan Greeks borrowed from Jews, and religious Jews were influenced by Greeks to create this sort of hybrid philosophy. And it's a sort of philosophy that's, that's carried on the air, the Colossian air, And some of the believers in the church have been breathing it in. So yes, of course, there are false teachers, but those teachers don't yet seem to have infiltrated the church, though they are influencing the church. And it's becoming the air, the the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, which these new converts are beginning to breathe. So Paul says to them, no, no, no. Verse 8, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Well now uh, Paul spells out more clearly the elements of this false teaching in verses sixteen to twenty-three. We're only going to get as far as far as verse nineteen today. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Colossians chapter two and verses sixteen to nineteen. Let's remind ourselves what it says. from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So we're going to be looking at four things to say, four points. Point number one, what are the elements of this false teaching? Why is it finding traction in the church? Well, there's this Jewish dimension where they've pulled in Old Testament scriptures and practices. So you might say it's Bible-based. There are proof texts. Verse 16, questions of food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. Keep the rules, follow the religious calendar. make sure you do the right do's and don'ts. And wow, says this teaching, it's a, it's a short cut to holiness. It's a fast track to God. How attractive, how, how straightforward. I know where I am. I know what to do. I know how to get on. The more diligent I am in, in keeping these rules, the nearer I'll get to God. Think about a young Christian. That's, that's music to their ears, isn't it? Because they can see in very real, tangible terms the, the progress that they're making in the Christian life. It's like a moving walkway. Speeding you up, making progress, and, and, it's, and it's biblical, biblical Old Testament. But if that doesn't uh, quite get you, if that sounds a little bit dry, a bit too religious, well, let's, let's, let's bring in some super spiritual experiences. Here maybe we're pulling in ideas, Greek ideas of body and spirit, where the body is a prison and, and we need to release the spirit, so, verse 18, the worship of angels. Oh, yeah, look, look, I'm getting nearer and nearer to God. And visions. I'm stepping into the, the unseen realm. And asceticism, verse 18. Well, what's that? Well, it's a lifestyle where you abstain from the pleasures of the body to advance to a, a higher state. A, a, a spiritual plane, a, a spiritual goal. So all these super spiritual experiences, they're within your reach. You've just got to cultivate, you've just got to adopt the right lifestyle. Again, how how attractive. You, I can be fast-tracked into, into experiencing the, the world beyond. And it all sounds so biblical, doesn't it? you know abasing myself to rise higher it's like a yellow brick road to god again music to these young christians ears so there are proof texts straightforward rules saying no to the body to open the door to new spiritual experiences wonderful sign me up I hope you're persuaded already Nearer my God to thee. Well, point number two what's the problem with all of that? Um, well, Paul spells it out. What about those Old Testament teachings? Aren't, aren't they biblical? Proof texts? Now, I doubt if what's going on in Colossae is simply a straight lifting of Old Testament scriptures and applying them directly to the believers. I suspect what's happened because Jews and and Greeks are influencing each other. I suspect these scriptures have been taken, and they've been woven into this teaching, which Paul talks in verse 8 of being philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition. It's been woven in, but it's kind of giving it a, a, a biblical sense, a biblical air. Anyway, what does Paul say about this? Verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Those Old Testament things, what are they? They're a shadow, shadow of things to come. Are shadows solid? Well, no. Can the shadow of a tank run you over? No. So shadows are not solid, but shadows are cast by solid objects. So, what's more real? What's more significant? Is it the solid object or the shadow cast by that solid object? Well, the thing which is real is the solid object. Well, says Paul, exactly. The solid object is Christ. All these Jewish laws and celebrations and so on, they are pointing forward to Christ. They're the shadows that are cast by Christ, if you like, cast back into the Old Testament. But once you come to the solid object, once you come to Christ, well, I'm not bothered about the shadows anymore. I've got the real thing. You don't need the shadows anymore. Why focus on the shadows when you can enjoy the very thing which those shadows foretell? Paul says to the Colossians, if you have Christ, which you do, you don't need the shadows. It's a bit like someone offering uh, to, to, to give your home a makeover, and they say, "We'll give your home a makeover, and uh, you leave your home for a week. And when you come back, it'll all be done." So you think, "Okay, right, we'll, I'll, I'll leave my home." And you come back a week later, and you found out they've taken out all the electricity. They've gone back to pre-electric days. So instead of lights, you've got candles. I, think I, I can't see. It's not, it's not bright enough. And instead of a, a washing machine, <laughs> you've got a washboard and a bit of soap. I think, well, I can't get my clothes clean. It was so much better, wasn't it, before the makeover? I don't want to go back to the pre-electric days. I don't want to go back to, to those days. The reason we don't have those days anymore is because now we've got electricity. We don't need those things. Point made? Why go back to those days when those days foretold this day and this day has now come? You don't need to go back. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the solid object that's cast that shadow, is Christ. Okay, but what about all this super spiritual stuff? Well, verse 18... Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So asceticism, saying no to the body to release the spirit, super-spiritual experiences. Does a broken body get you near to God? Well, no, it's a a broken and contrite heart, isn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does the worship of angels get you near to God? Well, verse 10, we've been told Christ is head of all rule and authority. He's ruler over the angels. And verse 15, he trounced all those demonic rulers and authorities. And can going on about visions that have simply come out of your own mind, come out of your own head, is that more captivating than the all-surpassing beauty and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ? Like the way Paul puts it in verse 18. He says, uh, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. I mean, that's it, they're going on. Apparently, the most one of the most boring things. Um, I'm sure it's not always true, but one of the most boring things is is people telling you their dreams, yeah, because you weren't there, and you don't know what it's about, and when you hear it in the cool light of day, it doesn't sound quite as interesting and exciting as they perhaps thought it was. Um, it was only in their head, wasn't it? It wasn't real. So you imagine here in this church, here, there's some self-important somebody. It's going on and on and on and on, going on, says Paul, and sense of it is going on and on and on about visions that they've had in their head which aren't real. A head that's probably very limited. It's like reading blogs, isn't it? Only worse. And you see, the real danger is this. Think about it. Can food and drink and religious high days and holidays really bring you near to God. No. The one who brings you near to God is the Lord Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which means, of course, someone could tick all these religious boxes and appear very spiritual without even knowing Christ. So why go down that road? Again, think about it. Can an austere lifestyle and super spiritual experiences bring you near to God? The answer is no. They may make the blood rush, but they can't make you holy, and you won't find the presence and power and the love of God, because those things are only found in Christ. He's the head we're the body. And so again, you see, someone could tick all the right boxes. They, you know, they've, got, they've adopted this lifestyle. They've got visions. They're, oh, all those things that are going on. All these super spiritual boxes, yeah, and tick that and tick that and tick that without even knowing Christ. That's the danger. This teaching, you can do it all and have it all without knowing Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. You can have all that and not have any grip on Christ at all, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Don't go down that road, says Paul. Because if you go down that road, you'll find that you've been had. It's a bit like walking in a beautiful garden. And you're just, you know, you're, you're going further and further into it. And, oh, it's just and the further you go, the more beautiful it becomes. And someone comes alongside you and tells you, actually, there's a better garden than this garden. And it's a hard sell. They keep going on about it. And they're quite forceful. And uh, you're feeling a bit embarrassed because, you know, you're saying, well, this is a beautiful garden. I really like this garden. And they say, yeah, but but you haven't seen the garden that I'm telling you about. And you feel a bit embarrassed and you kind of feel, in the end, they make you feel a bit ashamed that you're not prepared to listen to their, about their garden. And you sort of get a bit coerced and you think, okay, well, maybe there is a better garden than this garden. Um, And so you're persuaded, and uh, they say, well, I'll take you there. You jump in the car, and they they drive you there. And and on the journey, are they going on and on and on about this beautiful garden that they know? It's changed their life and the things that they've seen. And when you arrive at this garden, you get out of the car, and you go in, and you, you look around you, and you find it's a wasteland. And it's just filled with thorns and thistles and rubbish and rubber tires. And all the promises were fake and false. I've left the real garden, the beautiful garden, for this I've been had. says, Paul, don't let it happen to you. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. It's empty. Don't be taken in by it. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and we'll talk about the elemental spirits, God willing, next time, and not according to Christ, don't be taken in. Which brings us to <coughs> excuse me, point number three. This false teaching that's sort of in the air in Colossae and is being breathed in and influencing the church, what, what impact will it have on the church? Well, of course, ultimately, if they don't hold fast to Christ, the head, um, it'll be devastating. The body will wither and die. But before then, these young believers breathing in the air, this teaching getting into the bloodstream of the church, what will be the impact? Well, number one, it's a massive distraction. Whilst they could be going on with Christ, holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God, while well, they could be doing that, they're, they're fussing about Old Testament shadows. While they could be going on with Christ, holding fast to the head, they're trying to keep up with these spiritual fads and fashions in pursuit of some experience maybe wasting hours and hours listening to somebody droning on about their latest vision. So problem number one, it's going to be a distracted church that's not going on with Christ, that's not growing. Number two, in that church, you're going to get elitism. There are going to be people who regard themselves as superior, looking down upon those who they consider are their inferiors. Now, remember, this is a church of masters and slaves. Chapter 3, verse 22, Paul speaks to the slaves, Bondservants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And there are masters. Chapter 4, verse 1, tr- masters, treat your bond servants, your slaves, justly and fairly. In this church, there are masters and slaves. Now, think about that. Who's got the time and the money to fuss over food and drink and religious calendars? Certainly not the slaves. Who's got the time and the money to pursue an ascetic lifestyle? Certainly not the slaves. You'll find that asceticism, it prevails among elites. Those with the time and the money, they they can adopt an ascetic lifestyle. The rest of us can't. Who's got the time and the energy to take days out in pursuit of some super spiritual experience? Certainly not the slaves. Their days are long and hard and tiring. They have very few choices because they have to obey their masters. So the only ones who can chase after these things are the elites. Those are the time and the money and the opportunity and the freedom so whilst they polish their beautiful souls the slaves have to get on with slaving and of course if the mark of your maturity the mark of your spirituality is the right food and the right drink and the right festivals the right new moons and sabbaths and asceticism and angel worship and visions if that's the mark of maturity, all the things which slaves cannot do, then you end up with superior Christians looking down their noses at inferior Christians. You get in the church first and second class Christians. Elitism. Do you see now why Paul says what he says in verse 16? Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or in regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Say the masters are slaves, of course you can't do those things, can you? Don't let the elites look down their noses at you. Same in verse 18, isn't it? Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up, there it is, puffed up without reason by sensuous mind. Don't let the elites preside, because they can do those things, don't let them preside over everyone else. What's ticking boxes got to do with anything? Your true standing, whether you're a slave or you're a master, your true standing is not measured by these things. Because these things an unbeliever could do. These things a false teacher can do. These things an apostate can do. Your true standing before God is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ holding fast to the head. So again, this teaching influencing the church is going to be a divided church. There are going to be first-class Christians who can do all those things, and second-class Christians, the slaves, who cannot do those things. And the third thing to say about it is it's going to be an authoritarian church with these elites who can polish their souls, telling everybody else what to do. Let no one disqualify you, verse 18. The sense is let nobody rule you out of order. Let no one stand there passing judgment on you because you can't have or do these things. Let nobody stand there insisting on this is how we live the Christian life. See what's going on? This false teaching simply reinforces what's going on in Colossian culture. In Colossian culture, there are the haves and the have-nots. In Colossian culture, there are masters and there are slaves. In Colossian culture, there is a them and an us. And this false teaching is simply taking that and bringing that into the church. It's simply reinforcing... Colossian culture in the church. Those who tell you what to do and those who do what they're told. Where one group imposes the rules upon another. And it's scandalous, isn't it? When verse 19 says, Paul, you're one body. One body dependent upon the same Lord. And how many heads in that body? How many people telling you what to do? Just one, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not to be divided. You're to be united. Because verse 19, that is how you will grow. That is how you will flourish. So Christian friends, only ever one voice to listen to. Only one person to please. That is Christ holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. So do you see the dangers? If this teaching gets a grip, it will be in this church a disaster. The first thing it will do, it'll be a massive distraction because rather than pursuing Christ and cultivating together their walk with Christ and listening to His voice and His Word and growing and flourishing, they're going to be fussing over all of these things which have got absolutely nothing to do with the Christian life. That, in fact, an unbeliever can do all of those things and not know Christ. It's a massive destruction. And also, you're going to get in that church, you're going to get spiritual elites, because those with the time and the energy to polish their beautiful souls will make advances, and the rest who cannot, because they're slaves or because they have a different standard of living, are going to be left behind. And you're going to get authoritarianism. There are some people who impose their thoughts, their will, the way that it is upon everyone else. Just like there is in, in Colossi society. The world's come into the church. And you are going to get a church where everyone's looking over their shoulder, worrying about what other people think. And they may not like it, but they'll just go along with things. Because of the bullying and disapproval of others. What a disaster if this teaching gets a grip. Well, we'll look more next time at the teaching. The point number four, what about us? Do we pass judgment on others on the basis of do's and don'ts? and not Christ. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Do we rule people out of order because they lack the marks of super-spirituality rather than the fact they hold on to Christ? Christ. Let no one disqualify you by insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Do we in this church have first-class Christians and second-class Christians? Them and us. Do we have strong personalities who impose a view of spirituality? Do we look over our shoulders, worrying about what others think? (coughs) Do we adopt a certain lifestyle and manner? Not because we believe that's what Christ wants of me, because I'm trying to fit in. I want to please others, because it's viewed as something that's more spiritual. Rather than actually I'm someone who who obeys the Word of God and that's that's why I do what I do. That's what drives me. Obedience to Christ, love for Christ, serving Christ. And I haven't got time for distractions because I want to be up and doing for Him. Great call to know and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ holding fast to the head. Let me give you some examples. Um, some of them will be a bit silly. <coughs> but think about what underlies those examples. Okay, they're, they're true. They're true examples. There was a Christian who was photographed relaxing next to a Christmas tree. And he was, seemed very relaxed. Christmas tree there. Some strict Christians, so I'm put it like that, wrote him off because a christmas tree is pagan so how can he be at ease next to a pagan symbol if he was really godly he wouldn't be at ease with a christmas tree but it's just a tree now look if he was dancing around it in some pagan fertility right that would be different but it's a tree And standing next to a tree says nothing about your godliness and nothing about your relationship with Christ. Some people are are viewed as spiritual if they have have the right books on their shelf. Or they go to the right conferences. But what if you can't read? Or if you find the the books on those shelves just, just very difficult to read? What if you can't afford to go to those conferences? Does that make you unspiritual? Are you less godly? Are you a bit more suspect? You know, I've checked their bookshelf. I was going to say that, but I won't say it. Some churches have the right vibe, don't they? You know, it's great music, comfy seats, good coffee. The guys are hip, the girls are fashionable. There are beautiful presentations of the gospel it's uber cool uber spiritual there are people with the time and the money to make everything in that church just right they even read calvin's institutes in the pub does belonging to that church make you godly maybe it puffs you up and what if you're not uber cool <laughs> what if you're unfashionable what if you're a geek or a loser? Or a middle-aged bloke with a with a troublesome waistline? Does that make you less of a Christian? Because you're not in harmony with that church and the lifestyle and the way that it is. And anyway, Uber cool, what was it like 20 years ago? It was a different view of that, wasn't it? So, so we're not like they were 20 years ago when they thought they were they were cool and that was the way it should be. And, does that make them less spiritual or does that make us less spiritual? Some people have a holy air and they speak in a holy voice. Certain, way of, certain manner that they have when it gets to, gets to spiritual things. I know a church where a man, the man who comes to the front to give the notices, he leaves his pew in the 21st century and as he walks to the front and gets to the lectern. It's, it's now the 17th century, and he speaks in a, in a holy voice with language from another time, and he gives the notices and gives the welcome, and then he leaves the pulpit, and well, it's the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st century. He's back in his pew, Are we in danger placing an undue, unbiblical significance on outward things, on an outward conformity, on an outward spirituality, which maybe only those with the time and the money, the intellect, to polish their souls can do? Things which actually say nothing about how godly I am, nothing about my walk with Christ, things which actually any person could do without having any relationship with Christ and therefore be seen as being spiritual. Those things say nothing about that humble, self-forgetting service. It says nothing about my love for the Lord and my love for His people. It says nothing about the fruit of the Spirit. Just outward things, just ticking the right boxes. Which an unbeliever, adopting a Christian culture... A Christian mindset, if you like, in that sense, could pass with flying colors. And you see, once we step down that road, we get distracted. We get taken up with these things. We lose sight of Jesus. Once we get down that road, we start getting elites who preside. And what you get in the church, then, you get a dominant culture. You get a monoculture where everyone has to fit in. Everyone has to be a certain way, a certain talk, a certain outlook, a certain way of dealing with anything. It's a monoculture. They're all the same. And everyone's contained and constricted, and their personalities are hidden under this monoculture. Because there are people who are pointing the finger, and there are people who are looking over their shoulder worrying about what others think. We lose sight of the cross. We're no longer living in the shadow of the cross. We're living in the the shadow of all these rules and outward things. And we lose sight of our Lord Jesus Christ. And love in the church ceases to be its defining mark. What defines it is that monoculture. And we stop pursuing holiness because we're pursuing these other things. And real, fruitful, godly, Family, church, life gets turned on its head. (laughs) No wonder, remember our series on Philemon? It was a run up to this one. We'll perhaps come back to these things next week, God willing. No wonder God has to step in in this church. So, brothers and sisters, is their danger our danger? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's directness. We thank you for his reassurance. We thank you, Lord, that the great thing is to know and to love and to walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, sift us, search us, you know our hearts. You see what nobody else sees. We pray, gracious God, that you would have mercy upon us, that the roots of such teachings would not become embedded in this church. And if such things are already uh, growing in the church, you'd help us to uh, uproot them and throw them on the compost heap, and that we would be preeminently a, a community know you and love you and worship you, that we might be characterized by love, that we might bear much fruit, and that we might grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, growing up into our head in all things. We ask that, Lord God, by your Spirit, that you would work these things in us in a profound and enduring way and for your glory, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.